0: Great experience. Great experience. Well, yeah, I want to invite you to turn to uh, in. Gotta get this down here. Sorry, guys. There we go. All right. Oh, it's, there we go. Okay. <clears throat> it's not working. So, how's everybody doing today? Yeah, yeah, I love electronics no input is detected. OK, well, what I want to do, th- thank you, uh, is take you back to the year 1965. And uh, I want you to imagine an aircraft carrier. It's the USS Oriskany. that's it right there. And uh, this aircraft carrier is 890 feet long and uh, planes taking off from it all the time. And one of the guy's planes is James Stockdale. You may remember James Stockdale ran as the vice presidential candidate for Ross Perot. And sadly, he was sort of savaged on Saturday Night Live. But uh, James Stockdale was an amazing individual. And on September the 9th, 1965, he took off from the aircraft carrier, thinking that he was doing great, thinking that everything was just just fine. There we go. Thank you. And um, there's Stockdale. And he takes off from his aircraft carrier, thinks that this mission is gonna be like every other mission that he's done, very successful. And then he hears the sound, the whoosh, and the thud, and he realizes, I've been hit. In one fluid motion, he ejects out of the plane. Suddenly, after ejecting out of the plane, everything is nice and calm, the up uh, up above him, the fields are there below him, and he realizes, I have only minutes to plan out the rest of my life. The minute he hits the ground, he is captured, beaten up, and taken to that place on the screens, which is called the dreaded Hanoi Hilton. Um, seven years, seven years he's in this place. Because he was the senior naval officer, leadership fell to him, and Stockdale did three very simple but very significant things. Number one, he created a, a system of communication that was slow and laborious, but it worked. Number two, he created a code of conduct, and they continually reinforced the mission. And the mission was, you are your brother's keeper, and you are going to go return home with honor. You're your brother's he- keeper, and you're going to return home with honor. Well, okay, so after seven years, you'd expect that all these guys would be just like totally you know, racked with PTSD and having gone through this horrible situation, and it would have been terrible you'd expect that right because that's the torture was was that bad and yet something amazing happened think about the people who returned of the veterans of the hanoi hilton there were two u.s senators one u.s congressman one vice presidential candidate one republican presidential nominee a superintendent of the u.s naval academy an instructor at top gun a major general brigadier general four-star general a medal of honor recipient university professors authors doctors entrepreneurs how did that happen that's amazing that's not what you would expect veterans of the Hanoi Hilton had a 4% incidence of PTSD versus a 30% incidence among all Vietnam vets now that that is amazing when I when I read that I thought "Ah, that can't be that can't be true It appears that they actually grew and thrived in prison. So I did a little checking on this, and I actually went to the academic article on Google Scholar and found out that that statistic is indeed true. They thrived in the midst of a horrible, cruel situation in prison. Why did they thrive? The reason why was that James Stockdale caused two disciplines to be operative in that that prison. Discipline number one, I said it before, you are your brother's keeper. You will return with honor. Those two disciplines. And they always talked about about those disciplines. And so, you know, here's the thing spiritual disciplines do something for us on the inside. No matter how bad get things get on the outside, people can thrive if they impose disciplines on the inside. Things can be horrible on the outside, but if you as a follower of Christ impose disciplines upon yourself in the power of the Spirit on the inside, you have the potential for thriving even in the worst situations. So Proverbs 19, 8 through 15, Solomon gives us a prescription for thriving. And uh, Solomon's strategy goes like this. Verse 8, he gives us the vision for thriving. It can happen, even in the midst of chaos. And then in verses 9 through 12, he gives us disciplines for thriving at work. And then in verses 13 through 15, he gives us disciplines for thriving at home. And the main thing he wants to get to get Uh, us to realize is that you choose your level of thriving by how consistently you impose disciplines on yourself in the power of the Spirit. I'm adding the power of the Spirit because of the theology of Proverbs. He doesn't mention it here, but he mentions it elsewhere. You get to choose your level of thriving by how you apply disciplines in the power of the Spirit. So we start off with a vision, life vision here to thrive, I must cultivate the right set of spiritual disciplines. He says this, whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. Now, that may not seem like an earth-shattering proverb to you. I have to tell you, it is an earth-shattering proverb. That is such a profound, a pr- profound statement. Now, To fully grasp this, you have to understand the nature of the soul. In the Bible, the soul is defined as our integrated self. It's our whole person. So let's think about how humans are constructed. We're constructed with parts. Uh, In the inner circle is my heart. My heart is, is the deepest part of me. My heart is my spirit. My heart is my executive center. It's the place where I make decisions. That's the innermost circle. The next circle is my mind, it's my thoughts and my feelings and my conscience and it's, it's what I think about on a daily basis. Circle number three is my body, it's my, my strengths, my appetites, my habits, it's what I, what I do with my body. But none of these three things are our soul. Our soul is my capacity to integrate all three functions of life as contained in these three circles. Now, I can have a disintegrated life where my heart doesn't do what my mind wants to do and my heart my mind doesn't do what my body wants to do, and I feel frustrated because my life is not, it's not coming together. It's not, not working for me. And I would say at that point, it is not well with my soul when this happens. For instance... You get to the summertime and you say, you know what? I kind of want to get into that swimsuit that I got into last summer, but I've gained some pounds, so I'm going to lose some weight. And so uh, in your your mind, you say, I really want to lose some weight. I really want to look okay in my swimsuit. So you ramp up your decision-making capacity in your will and you say, I am going to lose weight. And your will says, not so fast, not so fast. I am really hungry, and I'm not going to do what you want to do here. Your will has hijacked what your mind wants, and therefore your your body is not getting the results that you had hoped and intended. We as human beings hunger for an integrated soul where the parts of us are in, in harmony, Now, think about what the Bible says about a soul in disharmony. I'll go go back to this last slide. Our soul can become downcast, Psalm 42. Our soul can feel distressed, Psalm 31, 7. Our soul can feel wasted, Psalm 31, verse 9. David said one time his soul felt torn as if by a lion tearing his skin. We don't like that. It is not well with our soul when we experience that. We hunger for an integrated soul where the parts of us are in harmony. Now, let me tell you about a time when it was well with my soul, summer of 2013. Cindy and I took a trip to visit our daughter in London. I got an opportunity to take a class for a week in Oxford. After that time, Cindy and I went to Paris on the channel train We got a hotel room on Ile de la Cite, right in the middle of Paris, in the middle of the Seine River, right next to the right next to the uh, uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. And that was an amazing, amazing week for me. Body, mind, spirit, all integrated, all feeling really good. And sometimes I'll say to Cindy, you know, like Humphrey Bogart said, you know, well, babe, we'll, we'll always have Paris. Remember that, remember that movie? We'll, we'll always have Paris. You know, I, and, and I loved that trip. I felt like an integrated self enjoying life and my wife. It was, just, it, was, it was wonderful. But there was a time where it was also well with my soul, where things were not going well. We moved to Baltimore in uh, the late 19, 1980s, and um, we were making some real sacrifices to do what we were doing in Baltimore. We had four young kids. Cindy and I were kind of kind of stressed out by the move and by some other things, just life, the way life happened. Well, things were not going well for us financially. Things were not going well for us in the ministry that I had. Things were not going well for us in, in some multiple ways. And yet, through a good friend and mentor, I began journaling. And I determined that I would wake up every single morning at around 5.30, and I would journal. And in one of my journal articles, it said, this is our transition phase, a transition season of life. And I would pour out my heart to God on that, on that paper. And slowly what was happening was that my, my will and my mind and my body were coming together. And even though there was a lot of uncertainty and chaos around us, in many ways, it was well with my soul on the inside. You know, being well with your soul could happen in the good times, it can happen in the bad times. The key is, am I submitting to those disciplines that will lead toward thriving? So Solomon mentions this, this very important discipline um, called getting sense. Sorry about that. Called getting sense. And. Um, Getting sense is definitely a spiritual discipline. Now, let me, let me explain spiritual dis- disciplines for a second. A spiritual discipline is something you do with your body that allows you to live life unto God almost automatically. A discipline is something that you do in practice, in the power of the Spirit, so that when life happens, you respond to the way to, to God's way, almost automatically. It's a little, little bit like, like playing a piano. Alfred Brindell is an astonishing piano player. And the hardest piano concerto, I don't play piano, so I'm taking this on faith, is Brahms' second piano concerto. It's it's it's, it's, it's like Rachmaninoff's second, it's very hard. So Alfred Brindell said, you know, to learn how to play this, I had to sit down and practice eight hours a day, every day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and the first time I sat down to play this piano concerto, I was still nervous. It is that hard, it's that difficult. Now, th- that is his signature piece. And Alfred Brindell can play that piece, and he can close his eyes, he can dwell in the music, he can enjoy the nuances of Brahms' musicality. Why? Because he's practiced to such an extent that his his will, his mind, and his body are integrated into a whole and he can dwell in the music. That's what spiritual disciplines are. There's a bunch of spiritual disciplines, disciplines of prayer, Bible reading. There's disciplines you can apply to your marriage. There's disciplines of gratitude. There's disciplines, many, many spiritual disciplines. The Bible doesn't give us a list, I'm glad, because we'd make it it legalistic if if there was. But you can discern various disciplines in in the Scriptures. He gives us one of these disciplines here, and it's, it's the discipline of getting sense. So let me explain this. To get, in this verse, means to obtain something through consistent effort. It implies work it implies a lengthy process. Look, if you're going to run a marathon, it's not as simple as go to store, buy some Nikes. If you're gonna run a marathon, that's like, you should have already done that. If you're gonna run a marathon, it's gonna require practice and training in order to do that. That's what the term get means. But how do you get sense? Well, the term sense is literally the term heart. So, to get sense means to buy heart. Heart in the, New, in, the, in the Old Testament is the deepest part of us, like I've been saying on the screens. It's the executive center. It's the place where we make our decisions. It's the place of our will. So, to get sense means to buy heart. It means to be in the process of some spiritual disciplines that will strengthen our ability to do what's right when it counts. I love it that he says, whoever in the ESV. Whoever. Whoever wants to do this, you can do it. You might be a person who's really gifted. You can do this. You might be a person who's not very gifted at all. You can do this. You might be a person who's very talented at being disciplined. You can do this. You might be a person who says, I'm terrible at being self-disciplined. You can do this. You can do this. Because these disciplines are not disciplines you do in your own strength, they're disciplines you do in the power of the Spirit. God fellowships with you as you engage in these disciplines. So, what are the disciplines? We'll see disciplines in a second. But I just want you to notice the fantastic result. The result is flourishing, (laughs) flourishing. You're gonna love your soul. Now, there are times where I will text my wife, and Cindy has received these texts numerous times where I'll say, I love my job. And then uh, maybe another text where where I'll say to her, have I told you lately that I love what I do? Like, she, she, she gets these on a reasonably regular basis. Now, why can I say that at this season of my life? Uh, well, if, if my life is flourishing at any level, it's because the Lord has allowed me to feel like an integrated self in relationship to what I do. He says, whoever, anybody can have this. But we can just as easily not flourish. Like, like let, me, let me refresh your memory about the parable of the rich young, the rich fool, Uh, This is Rembrandt's version of The Rich Fool. But The Rich Fool was this guy who um, his business was booming. He had a false belief system about the soul. And he he thought, you know, if I just have more, my soul will flourish. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down my warehouses. I'm going to build bigger warehouses, all automated with artificial intelligence. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to store all my grain and my goods there. And then he gets done with the building project and he says, soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. There's just one problem. Money doesn't lead to an integrated soul. He had a false belief system money doesn't lead to an integrated soul and so god god says you you fool you fool this very night your soul is required of you soul integration soul flourishing comes as a result of the disciplines that we do in the, the spiritual life that that allow us to flourish in the power of the holy spirit here's another example here's a guy who was at the top of his game probably the greatest raw athlete in his sport i mean ever and then just last month uh he's pulled over dwi Uh, there's a picture of someone not flourishing why oh it's because it's because Athletic success by itself does not lead to soul flourishing. Soul flourishing is a spiritual thing. Now, let's let's make the transition and let's look at the application of getting sense and applying it to the marketplace. Human flourishing means I apply wisdom, first of all, at work. And so, we see in these verses, a false witness will not go unpunished. He who breathes out lies will perish. It's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Good sense, and by the way, that's the, a different Hebrew word than the word, verb in verse 8, but they're parallel and they're similar. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. Now, you'll notice that each verse has something to do with the kind of work that was done in the ancient world. Courts were held in city gates. And so leaders of cities would hold court in these city gates, I'll show you that in a second. Then he talks about slaves ruling over princes. He's talking about somebody who is unused to leadership being elevated to a place of leadership and handling it poorly. And then he talks about the king's wrath and the king leads in the largest venue possible we can detect in here four disciplines that can be used at work. Discipline number one is, obviously, tell the truth. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. As I said, in the ancient city, um, the city gates were the places where the leaders would sit in judgment. So imagine one day The leaders are sitting in judgment and a person comes up, he's called upon the witness stand, he's sworn in, he's asked questions. The guy's lying. You can tell that he's lying. What's the judge gonna do to the liar? He's gonna punish the liar. However, the implication in the second part of that line is that God is going to hold him accountable as well. He will perish. And the idea here is that if you wanna thrive at work, one of the things that you do is you tell the truth. You get into the habit of truth-telling. You tell the truth. And if you're a leader at work, one of the things you do is you create an environment that is free from fear. Why do most people lie? They're afraid. They're afraid of being caught. They're afraid they, they screwed up and did something wrong. So if you're if you're a leader wanting to create an environment in your division or your business where people don't lie, make sure you create a place where it's safe to tell the truth, safe to confess failure, safe to learn from mistakes. But if you want to flourish at work, don't lie. Tell the truth. By the way, you know the prisoners, the prisoners at the Hanoi Hilton? They regularly failed under torture. And many times these prisoners would go back to their friends and say, guys, I really screwed up. I really screwed up. I, I told them what the plan was. I told them where this installment was. I told them what our next phase was. And you know, you know what Stockdale did? Stockdale said, we're going to forgive you. <laughs> We're gonna forgive you. No matter what happens, no matter what you confess to the enemy, we're gonna forgive you. We are our brother's keeper, and you will return with honor. Because we're gonna be honorable as a community. Stockdale created a place that was free from fear. Discipline number one, tell the truth. Discipline number two, manage power well. It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to To rule over princes you know it's really easy for somebody who is not used to power someone not used to authority to misuse that power and authority once they are elevated into a place of responsibility i really appreciate one of the one of the things my dad did for me when i was growing up was he would talk to me about what was going on in his business i remember he and i would be driving to the hardware store or be driving to take care of a project he would tell me about his company and my dad would tell me sometimes about, about people who raised, got risen up the corporate ladder, and they, they were fools, speaking like the Proverbs. It was me first, and everybody else takes a dis- distance second. And I remember my, my dad telling me, you know, uh, the best people don't always, don't always get elevated to the best positions. They don't always. Well, think about people that you know who, who have abused power. Here's Terrell Owens. Owens made $80 million during his career. He filed for bankruptcy in 2012. His child support payments alone are $50,000 a month. Here's a guy who had tremendous power. He didn't know how to manage it. Dorothy Hamill, she won the gold medal in the 1976 Olympics. In 1993, she was listed as being a bit more popular than michael jordan if you can believe it michael jordan she owned the ice capades at one point she filed for bankruptcy Uh, here's a guy lenny dykstra guy played for the phillies guy played for the guy, guy played for the mets he was part of the 86 world series not only did he file for bankruptcy he committed bankruptcy fraud now people unused to knowing how to handle power man if they get elevated It can be brutal. So here's the answer. Learn how to lead. I will tell you, we are living in the golden era of leadership literature. Um, There is so many good books out there on leadership. You can start with Pat Lencioni's books. His books are easy to read. They're a quick read. They're distilled wisdom. But if you get elevated to a place of authority or a place of responsibility, learn to lead and learn to lead exceedingly well here's a third discipline manage your anger well good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense notice there are two habits here one is slow to anger one is quick to forgive those are the product of training how many of you in here say you know what I'm naturally naturally slow to anger good we got one not many people not many people are naturally slow to anger most of us you know we got a pretty short fuse and it requires discipline to learn to be slow to anger one of the things that i've been been learning is that you know in, in in with couples is that men men their blood pressure rises way faster than their wives blood pressure rises so in an argument Guess who gets tends to get flooded first? The man, the husband. And so, one of the things that I talk to couples about, you know, is the fact that when you get into an argument, realize that you've got to think differently, male versus female, about how you manage that argument to love your spouse. And uh, it's 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 something that you learn by by discipline. Is anger a problem in the workplace? You bet it is. Here's a story in the Wall Street Journal about ex-Uber engineer says company is full of sexual harassment and intimidation. That article title is the tip of the iceberg with Uber. There's another article talking about the anger that was expressed at senior levels among among executives. Uh, Anger in the workplace, big deal. You want to excel at work, learn how to manage your anger, your anger well. A good friend of mine in Dallas learned this the hard way. He was a hotshot young attorney. He was a real estate attorney. Graduated near the top of his class from Baylor University. Handled real estate law in a thriving Dallas market. One one time his his receptionist um, suddenly quit and his wife filled in. Wife filled in. And this is is a neat guy, neat guy. We we got to know him after this incident. But his wife fills in. And she hears him all day long bragging to his clients, using profanity, yelling at people. And his wife comes in one day and and she says, You are a different person than I married. I am disgusted by this. And if you don't stop this, I'm quitting. What happened guy was mismanaging his anger in the workplace and by the time we met him he had really turned this around he's a super guy fourth discipline learn to live under authority a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion but his favor is like dew in the grass our dog sadie is a wonderful pet wonderful pet and she's like a human being wrapped up in gray fur And a lot of times, you know, she just quietly, serenely sits in Cindy's lap and it's, it's great. It's great. But if somebody dares to come to our front door, you can hear the growl, the growl, low growl with Sadie. And if the person really approaches the door, Sadie jumps up, usually digging her paws, her nails into Cindy's leg for, you know, for leverage and races up to the door and growls and barks and gets all angry. And usually it's the UPS man delivering her dog food, right? (laughs) So it's it's ridiculous. But the growl tells us that the anger is coming. Listen, if you're you're, um, in the workplace and you see your boss with the um, human equivalent of the growl, you got a choice to make. Am I gonna live under authority? Am I gonna respond well to his frustration or her frustration? Or am I gonna cop an attitude and not live under authority? You know, the growl of a boss, you know, might be imperceptible at first, but to live in submission to authority, you know, it says, I can see you're uncomfortable with this. What can we do to change this? I can see this frustrates you. Okay, let's, let's work on a solution. But living under authority is part of, of flourishing in the workplace. And I'm telling you, authority is a dirty word these days. And a lot of people are unwilling to live under authority. So, those are the disciplines for, for the workplace. Now we switch to disciplines in the home. Human flourishing means I'm going to apply wisdom with my, my family as well. Here are the verses A foolish son is ruined to his father. <clears throat> and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Let me just kind of chart this for you. Here's a picture of a dysfunctional home, and we see three things in this dysfunctional home. We see a narcissistic son. Now, This son is described as the fool. And remember, the fool says, I'm first, everybody else is second, including God. And this fool did a really stupid thing, I'm assuming, in context. Because what he did was he squandered his parents' estate so that he can't take care of his parents in their old age. You remember that the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments is, honor your father and mother, that it might go well with you and you might live long in the land. What that meant in Old Testament times was that you took care of mom and dad when they couldn't work anymore. That's what that meant. And the assumption is that the foolish son was all arrogant about the business, and he squandered the business, and now mom and dad don't have anybody to take care of them in their, their old age. We also have a quarreling spouse, Now I realize it says wife here. Uh, the Hebrew poetry, the way I read it, suggests that it could be a husband or a wife. So this spouse is quick to escalate arguments this spouse takes offense at everything the spouse is never pleased there's a constant drip 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 of frustration acrimony and anger and then you got the lazy worker at home in the ancient world this is the person who didn't didn't harvest on time didn't plant on time didn't weed during the process and in our world this is the person who doesn't take care of the finances it's the person that doesn't t- make sure the car insurance is paid up, doesn't make sure the savings is replenished after you've taken some money out. It's laziness with regard to personal business. So we've got three examples of a dysfunctional home, narcissistic son, squar- quarreling spouse, and lazy worker at home, dysfunctionality. The middle verse, though, tells us what functionality looks like, and it is a beautiful picture. House and wealth are inherited from fathers. In a functional home, there is a discipline of extending honor to the next generation. It's a discipline of extending honor to the next generation. We had a a really wonderful thing that we were able to do with our daughter Sarah before she moved off to England. Uh, Somebody had made for us a little pendant that had an arrow on it. I had talked about Psalm 127, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. So a friend had made an, a pendant, an arrow pendant, and Cindy and I had a, had a moment where we, we had lunch with Sarah, and we presented the arrow pendant to Sarah, and we just said, Sarah, you, you are our arrow, and we have the privilege of sending you off into the, in, into the next generation. You're going to England, you're going to get married, and we're... we're we're sending you out and we, we honor you. You're a great, great member of our family. We love you and we're sending you out." And it was an honoring moment. So fast forward to this past week. I'm on FaceTime with my daughter and I'm, I'm seeing my daughter interact with her daughter, our granddaughter. And, and just a side comment, I see my daughter say something incredibly, incredibly honoring to my granddaughter in the moment. Now, somebody, somebody at first service asked me what it was. I can't remember the exact words, but it was an incredibly honoring thing. And I can remember thinking, oh, wow, Lord, thank you, because I'm getting a picture. Cindy and I honor our daughter, and then I see our daughter honoring her daughter. And what I'm realizing is that there is, there is honor that's being extended generationally that is such an important thing you remember that Adam named his wife Eve the mother of all the living that's an incredible statement Genesis 3:21. incredible statement because what did Adam feel about Eve back in Genesis chapter 3 early section the woman that you gave to me it is her fault I'm I'm really mad at her and I'm mad at you too but Adam, Adam listened to what God said about her and he realized she's going to have kids. She's going to have progeny. And he constructed from that little snippet of information a name for his wife that was an honoring name. You know, he, he could have said, honey, I'm going to call you dream killer. <laughs> I'm going to call you death maker. I'm going to call you future buster because you really screwed things up here for us and for everybody else. He didn't do that. He looks at her identity from God's perspective and then he constructs a name that conveys that identity. Honor, it's honor. It's conveying honor generationally. Both honor from husband to wife, wife to husband, honor from parents to children, honor from children to grandchildren, conveying honor. When you do that, you have a flourishing. It is well with your soul. Now, if you're not there right now, that's okay because nobody n- none of us are there perfectly none of us but you can start now by saying I am going to embrace the discipline of honoring the people in my family might be my kids might be my spouse might be might be an aunt and uncle might be somebody who did something nice to me I, th- th- this this week I was I was down it was down in Dallas and I passed the Denny's where I was discipled by my mentor in 1976. I know that makes me sound really old. And I, I just I just texted him. I said, I said, Pat, thank you for investing in me when I was 19 years old. Thank you for doing that. I, w- I wanted to convey honor to somebody who had blessed me many, many years ago. And then the second part of a functional home is not just extending blessing to the next generation. The second part is spouses extending honor to each other. That's what I just talked about. It's Adam constructing this name for his wife. You know, you know the, the cool thing about about conveying honor is that you are bucking natural sin. You know, I, I love the work of John John Gottman. John Gottman teaches extensively on marriage. And he says, you know, the number one problem that couples deal with in marriage is a feeling of contempt. Contempt says, I'm right, you're wrong. Contempt says, I'm good, you're not so much, you're bad. Contempt contempt says, my way's best, Mm, your way not so much. That's contempt. And contempt is the thing that poisons a marriage. You know what you know what honor does? Honor crushes contempt. It crushes contempt. But you gotta be at it as a discipline. It's easier for me now because being in Celebrate Recovery taught me the discipline of not blaming the Lord, the woman whom you gave to me. It taught me the discipline of not blaming. So it's it, a functional home is, is a home where there's that, there's that discipline of honor to, um, uh, on an ongoing, ongoing basis. So let's go back to the Hanoi Hilton prison. That's what it looks like today. It's cleaned up today. But two men were put in the Hanoi Hilton prison as a cruel joke by the Vietnamese. They put in that prison a white Southerner named porter halliburton and an african-american pilot named fred jerry they had heard about racism in the south they thought ha we're gonna put these guys together a southerner and an african-american we're gonna put them together in the same cell and their torture is going to be their acrimony and their animosity toward each other that didn't happen that didn't happen it was awkward at first because they both thought the other one was a spy once they sorted that out what they realized was, okay, our mission is we are our brother's keeper, and we're going to return home with honor. And that means that we learn to love each other as fellow human beings. Well, over the weeks, months, and years that they were there, both of these men were tortured. Cherry was tortured a lot worse than Halliburton. So what Halliburton would do is he would serve as nurse, as physical therapist, as comforter to Fred Sherry, even at times helping him take care of bodily functions when he was too delirious even to get out of bed. Both these men in the process came to Christ and became brothers in Christ. So, did they maintain their relationship? Oh yeah, their relationship flourished. There they are, about ten years ago, both are dead now, but even it even flourished with their wives. Now, they had seven and a half years to practice the disciplines of flourishing. They were enforced upon these two men. They could have, they could have been at each other. No, they they, they decided that they would submit. To the discipline, Stockdale said, "You are your brother's keeper." Biblical worldview narrowed down to what we do in jail, and these two men ended up flourishing. By the way, they not only flourished as brothers in Christ; they flourished in their career in the Air Force and in the Navy. You know what I what I love about 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 this idea that Solomon gives to us is that it just, it's just, it's kind of a vision. You know, whoever gets through the practice of spiritual discipline, sense, that is heart, is going to love his own soul. You're going to thrive, you're going to flourish. He who keeps understanding by continuing those disciplines will discover good. That's what I want. You know, so what I want as I want to see these disciplines like a portfolio of things that I'm developing here and there so that when life gets gets tough i do those things which god commands me to do because i'm i'm used to doing them let's stand for our closing prayer father god we want to all humble ourselves before you right now lord and we recognize that uh, we often are tested and in our testing many times it reveals to us an area that is um that is a foolish area, and Father, I pray that if if there's if there's anybody here who says, "Man, um, I, I am I am not practiced in this area. I'm not I'm not good in this area," that rather than feeling any sense of shame or guilt or anything like that, Lord, that we would just submit in the power of the Spirit to those disciplines that will lead us toward truth-telling and managing authority well and managing leadership well and honoring our spouse well and in extending honor to our kids well Lord, we thank you that um the great thing about grace is that we can learn from our failure in fellowship with the indwelling spirit lord let us do that in jesus name amen hey our prayer team's gonna be up here and they would love to pray for you about anything going on in your life Hope you have a great Sunday afternoon.